Hi everyone, I'm Jen Malott, and thank you for joining us for this new edition of the Freshfields Essential Antitrust Podcast. Global economies are slowly coming out of lockdown, and governments are looking ahead at the long-term impact COVID-19 will have on the economy. Some countries are looking to defend their national interests in the face of the pandemic, and in some cases they've responded by ramping up foreign investment regimes that subject sales of strategically important domestic companies and assets to strict scrutiny. Today, we're going to discuss some of the changes in foreign investment review in recent weeks and months, some of which are temporary, but others of which are likely here to stay. And I'm fortunate to be joined by three foreign investment experts who are going to walk us through it. First, we have Michelle Davis, based in London, who has advised on high-profile UK public interest cases and has significant experience in EU and UK merger control. Next, we have Ayman Mir who spent more than a decade shaping and implementing U.S. national security and investment policy as the head of CFIUS before he joined us here at Freshfields, where he advises clients on leading CFIUS mandates. And third, we have Hazel Yin, the co-head of our China competition practice and one of very few lawyers who has handled national security review cases in China. Michelle, why don't we start with you? Can you tell us a little bit about the changes that we've seen in Europe in the past months? Thanks very much, Jen. Well, I I think it's fair to say that even before COVID happened, um, we had seen Europe seeking to tighten up the control of foreign investment, um, primarily driven by member states such as France, Germany and Italy, who were really keen that Europe did have uh, a foreign investment regime because at the minute only about half of member states in Europe do have one. So we had the introduction of the European Foreign Direct Investment Regulation last year, which set out a framework of rules that member states who choose to have a foreign investment regime have to adhere to. But COVID-19, of course, has intervened and has accelerated the debate in Europe about European strategic autonomy and the importance of protecting strategic EU assets from foreign takeovers. You know, the real concern there is that an acquisition by a foreign power could result in some sort of threat to member state security or to public order. And there's a particular concern in Europe that the current volatility and undervaluation of European stock markets could result in a sell-off of critical infrastructure or tech to foreign investors. So what we saw back in March was that European Commission issued effectively a call to arms to member states to make use of their existing foreign investment regimes to fully take into account the risks to critical and strategic uh, European assets um, as a result of, of foreign investors swooping in at this point. And the message was clear. If you've got a foreign investment regime, make sure it's tough enough to deal with these sorts of issues and think about strengthening the powers that you have. And for those member states who don't have one, get one and get one quickly because they want to have that infrastructure in place to basically protect um, European companies. And you know, we've seen an immediate impact in the aftermath of COVID and with this encouragement from the Commission, where, you know, Spain introduced foreign investment laws within a few days. We've even seen uh, countries like the Netherlands, which obviously has been very liberal and very pro-trade countries, but they're actually now consulting on their own foreign investment regimes. Um, and it's also empowered member states who already had regimes to toughen those up a bit. So we've seen Italy, Germany, France, all of those countries actually making their regimes tougher, capturing more transactions, bringing into scope uh, a lot more sectors. So it's quite clear that, you know, foreign investment and protectionism is here to stay. 
uh, in Europe. Um, you know, in addition, we've also seen the European Commission publish a white paper because they're concerned about the effect of state subsidies uh, from you know foreign uh, countries and how that impacts competition within Europe. So the message is very firm that Europe is tightening up. It's always been very um, welcoming of foreign investment, but I think the tide has turned. Yeah, and on the U.S. side, uh, because uh, SAFIS is basic jurisdiction for acquisition of ability, ability to review acquisition of control is not industry limited. CFIUS has always been able to examine foreign investments in the health sector, and it hasn't had the need for COVID-specific legislation. But it does now, as a result of rule changes that occurred in, in 2018, have the power to look at non-controlling investments as well, um, especially in in, uh, in technology areas and in areas where there may be collection of significant amounts of health data. So post-COVID, scrutiny of investments across the broader swath of healthcare assets is likely, uh, including you know, vaccines, medical equipment, protective gear, and so on, as the country scrambles to build more resilient supply chains. COVID has had an effect uh, more broadly. The Department of Defense has been very vocal about its concern that Chinese companies uh, maybe using the cover of COVID to target vulnerable companies in the defense supply chain, uh, and that CFIUS is one of the tools that the government has and is using to combat this. The National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which will be taken up by the uh, House of Representatives on the floor later this month uh, or, or next month, it also includes provisions to address perceived over-reliance on foreign supply chains and infiltration of supply chains by adversaries. In fact, within the past few days, advisor to the president, Peter Navarro, stated that going forward, foreign supply chains will be seen as national security issues, not just economic issues. So this would continue the trend, at least for this administration, of increasingly conflating economic issues and national security issues, a trend we certainly are seeing on both sides of the Atlantic, particularly in response to Chinese investment. Yeah, I t- totally agree with what you said there. I mean, about, you know, these trends being replicated on, on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, in in recent times, the UK government has been very focused on the fact that it needs to tighten up the existing um, regime, um, which allows them to intervene in certain transactions on national security grounds. Um, and it was back, I mean, it's almost two years ago now that they published their white paper um, setting out how they proposed to lower the thresholds for interventions and transactions on national security grounds and also to set up a system where you could actually voluntarily notify transactions that might raise national security issues. What we've seen, you know, in the light of COVID and the the trends that that you just described, I'm in, that um, we're expecting that when that bill actually comes to pass, that there may actually have been a bit of a change in direction and a bit of hardening of attitudes um, from the government in relation to how they deal with foreign investment. And, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting with bated breath waiting to see what those changes might be. But, you know, rumours are that the government may actually have changed its direction and flipped over um, to consider a mandatory regime in the UK, which would be a significant change of tack. The expectation is that the National Security and Investment Bill will get its first reading before summer recess, all being well. But in the meantime, and taking into account the COVID experience, the UK has announced a series of stopgap measures to tighten up the regime, 
pending that bill receiving parliamentary approval. So what we've seen announced this week is that the government is adding one extra public interest ground, justifying government intervention and mergers to the three that we have already. So as a reminder, the three we have already are national security, media plurality and financial stability. The new ground will allow the government to intervene in mergers to ensure they do not threaten the UK's ability to combat a public health emergency. So this is clearly tied to the COVID-19 experience. And it seems that what government has in mind is that they may need to intervene in certain transactions to protect businesses that are involved in pandemic response. So for example, vaccine research efforts or the manufacture of PPE. It may even be um, to protect companies that are active in the food supply chain. Um, the statutory instruments are yet to be published, um, but it's quite clear that the focus of this amendment is on UK resilience and consistent with what Iman was saying about the mix between national security and economic considerations. It's quite clear that the government is very focused on the fact that it is very dependent on international supply chains. And COVID has taught the government that you don't always know who your friends are in an emergency. So this new power will allow the government to step in if it has concerns um, about a foreign takeover of any business that would be critically important in dealing with a public health emergency. The other amendment um, that government has proposed will be following up from the amendment that was made two years ago to lower the thresholds for intervention on national security grounds in the quantum technology, computing hardware and military and dual use technology sector. But the government has announced that they will also be lowering the thresholds for transactions that involve targets active in artificial intelligence, cryptographic authentication technology and advanced materials. So if a transaction involves any of those sectors, it will qualify for review under the lower thresholds in the Enterprise Act. So it's quite clear that government has continues to have concerns about the risk of foreign investment in the UK. And these measures are expected to come into force very quickly and will give government additional powers, notwithstanding that the large scale reform hasn't actually reached Parliament as yet. So, Michelle, I mean, I mean, maybe to just pick up one point that you've both mentioned. I mean, it seems like one of the focuses here continues to be on Chinese inbound investment. Uh, Hazel, how are these developments being viewed in China? Um, I would say that the Chinese government has been uh, very measured in its response. In particular, I'm not seeing any escalation or reciprocal restrictions being contemplated uh, ever since COVID. Quite on the contrary, the overall direction of travel in China has continued to be one of uh, opening up uh, the markets for foreign investment. Um, this is widely interpreted as a mirror to provide a boost, actually, to the Chinese economy as it emerges from the pandemic. Even before COVID-19, um, inbound foreign direct investment was already trending downward for a variety of reasons, such as the rising cost of labor and land in China, and also you know, partly because of the uncertainty caused uh, by the U.S.-China trade tensions. Um, we are seeing investments moving to other destinations such as Vietnam and some other Southeast uh, Asian countries. Earlier this year, the Chinese government started revising the negative list for foreign investments. 
According to the State Council's press release, such a revised negative list should be significantly reduced and formally launched by end of this June. A number of industries, such as finance and agriculture, are expected to be further opened up. Simultaneously, ever since this March, the National Development and Reform Commission and also the Ministry of Commerce of China have been jointly amending the list of industries where foreign investments should be encouraged. The amendments are meant to expand the number of industries in which foreign investment will be encouraged and for which the foreign investors can enjoy benefits such as preferential tax treatment or discount on land price under certain conditions. Um, among the encouraged industries, high-tech manufacturing and green manufacturing are considered as uh, the mostly welcomed industries in China. But of course, this doesn't mean all investment will be easy in all sectors. So that's a, that's a really interesting point for our listeners, Hazel. Let's let me dig into that just just a little bit more. Are there sectors or companies that, uh, in your view, are particularly at risk of being caught by those new regimes? Yes, in China, actually, in addition to the uh, foreign investment regime I mentioned just now, there is also a separate national security regime uh, in place, which is uh, more akin to the uh, regimes discussed by uh, Michelle and uh, Eamon just now. And this national security review regime is aimed at capturing more sensitive deals that may have an impact on not only national security, but also on uh, national economic security. Uh, As a matter of principle, sectors related to national defense or critical agriculture, energy and resources, critical infrastructure, transportation, equipment manufacturing and key technology can all be covered by the uh, national security review regime. There's also a a trend where saying that the scope of transactions that may potentially fall under this regime may enlarge by, for example, capturing not only uh, foreign acquisitions of domestic entities, but also greenfield joint ventures. Uh, But so far, this regime, although introduced back in uh, 2011, has not been very visible. Uh, And there is no detailed public guidance as to how to define what should be considered as critical. Earlier last year, amidst the US-China trade tension, uh, NDRC, the Chinese regulator in charge of uh, macro industry policy making, has quietly replaced uh, MOFCOM, the foreign investment regulator, to become the lead agency coordinating of the Interministerial Commission for National Security Reviews. This in itself could perhaps tell something. Shortly afterwards, uh, the NDRC proactively initiated a National Security Review on Yonghui's acquisition of Zhongbai Group to listed uh, retail chains active in China. On the acquirer side, Yonghui, which is allegedly controlled by the UK conglomerate Jarring Group, eventually abandoned this transaction after the NDRC initiated an in-depth review of this transaction. Since no formal decision was ever published, it was not really clear why this transaction uh, has triggered the review in the first place. Uh, But it was uh, suspected that the target's military proximity and being uh, a major supplier to a military sports event could have been the reason that triggered the review and uh, the correspondingly the concerns. Again, while this is an area that should not be ignored, 
it does not seem that it will be as prominent as the similar regimes in EU or the US. And also, in addition to China, the other large Asian economies are generally going on the opposite direction, different from China. If we take Japan as an example, it amended its foreign investment rules back in uh, late 2019 and launched uh, you know, a set of detailed uh, implementation rules earlier this year. And following the uh, recent legislative development, uh, the threshold, for example, for pre-screening uh, notification of uh, Japanese listed companies has been uh, decreased from 10% to 1%. And also there are 12 core designated business sectors that are identified where foreign investment would be regulated even more heavily. And here we are talking about a wide range of businesses, including potentially hotels, uh, which could be caught by the new regime. So it is not just the obvious industries that are potentially being affected. And also, if we look at Australia, there's a, a trend of tightening foreign investment review as well. Uh, in March, in response to the uh, COVID crisis, Australian government imposed temporary measures to decrease all relevant monetary filing thresholds for foreign investment review to zero. Uh, besides, more recently, uh, earlier this month, Australian government proposed to adopt a, a new national security test, which may be introduced uh, uh, next year. Uh, under this potentially uh, new regime, foreign investment investors may be required to make mandatory notification of uh, any proposed investment uh, of a direct interest in uh, so-called sensitive national security business, regardless of the value of the investment. Although so far the scope of such sensitive business remains unclear, but uh, they're likely to cover energy, telecommunications, port, water resources, and also data. Michelle, in the European foreign investment regimes, are the sectors that regulators are, are focused on the same as what Hazel's described in Asia, or are they different sectors? Um, I think there, there's a degree of overlap, um, Jen. I mean, it's fair to say that the sector focus varies at national level, although in recent times there has been increasing convergence in Europe uh, between different member states. I think the common themes across Europe include obviously the traditional sectors of defence and you know ensuring that military capability is protected. But I think the buzzword in Europe at the minute is this whole idea of critical infrastructure and critical technologies. So there's a big focus on things like artificial intelligence, robotics. You know, there, there's a whole sort of technological sovereignty piece to this debate because, you know, as we've seen in, in Europe in recent times, there's been quite a bit of controversy over whether the competition regime in Europe is fit for purpose because there's a sense in countries such as France and, and Germany off the back of the Commission's prohibition of the Siemens Alstom transaction that Europe isn't doing enough to protect European competitiveness and that we may have to rethink some rules um, around whether there is a need for European industrial champions. So this is kind of feeding into some of this debate as well. Um, but I think, you know, critical infrastructure is sort of the buzzword, I would say, at the moment. And that's increasingly open to wide interpretation. One, one other thing that um, in, in these days of 
data being another buzzword that um, Europe's been focused on is preventing the outflow of sensitive information uh, and making sure that there's some sort of ability to control that information because there's a concern that, you know, that is something that could potentially be used for nefarious purposes. And I think building on what Ayman was saying, you know, obviously COVID-19 crisis has been a wake-up call for everyone. And suddenly I think countries all over the world are focusing on the fact that actually health is something very important. Um, so I think we're going to see increasing focus in Europe on protection of Europe's indigenous capabilities in, in the healthcare and health technology sectors so that Europe is in a position to cover the health needs of its citizens. And all of this is just tied up with this just general, I don't want to say paranoia, but there's there's clearly a lot of sensitivity in Europe at the minute about otherwise robust and strong strategic European companies suddenly being exposed to the risk of takeovers just because of the economic environment that, that we're facing. So, you know, I think the, the message in Europe is expect to see more intervention in the coming months. Yeah. And Michelle, you know, as uh, as regulators start to focus on healthcare, I mean, obviously, healthcare issues go hand in hand with with personal data issues. And is that something that these regulators are looking at as well? Or is that causing complications for this kind of a review? I think this uh, question of personal data is something that's relevant in in pretty much all of the reviews now, Jen. I mean, you know, if when you think about the amount of information that various companies hold on all of us, whether that's your mobile phone company, um, your electricity company, whatever it is, and you know, there's obviously lots of companies out there that just have a vast amount of data. And so that's something which in a way is is not a sector specific concern. It's just a reality of you know, that the electronic world that, that we're living in. So I think those issues, you know, which are very much obviously in the spotlight for antitrust enforcement in Europe, I think we're going to see a, a real focus on that also in the foreign investment side. It's really interesting because I think what you see is a number of com- countries coming at uh, this, these sets of issues from slightly different angles, but all of them ending up uh, exclusive of China. I mean, certainly if you're talking about uh, Europe and the US and Australia and Japan, all of them ending up at roughly the same place, in part because there's so much convergence between what presents national security issues, what presents uh, privacy uh, concerns, what presents uh, economic concerns. So in the US, for example, uh, you already, I mean, the US is a little bit of a leading indicator on some of this because as early as 2015, 2016, 2017 in the US, when I was managing CFIUS, we were already increasingly focused on emerging technologies, the vulnerability of critical infrastructure, access to sensitive data. But we in the US had two issues. One was that we could only look at uh, controlling transactions, but there was an increasing concern that, for example, a 10% investment and a board seat at a company that has some very significant uh, technology uh, that even though they didn't have control, they had the ability through that presence to uh, to facilitate technology transfer. And secondly, uh, CFIUS was at its base a voluntary process where either the companies came in voluntarily to, to get a review or the government had to go out and seek these transactions. But that left you in a position of, or the government perceived that it was at, it had the risk that uh, an investment could occur 
the technology could uh, be transferred, and only then, if the government looks at it, their remedy is relatively limited. So that's what led to reform in 2018, a new CFIUS law that gives uh, the ability for CFIUS to look at certain non-controlling investment in in the uh, in the, the critical technology, critical infrastructure, and sensitive personal data uh, area, and uh, and and the ability to mandate filings uh, for critical technology and certain foreign government investments. And at that time, even when I was there, I was in Europe talking to my counterparts uh, where they'd only started to start looking at these issues, but coming at it from a slightly different angle. In some cases, uh, seeing Chinese investment in major companies that were important to strategic industries uh, like the automotive sector or robotic sector, uh, which gave sort of an impetus to look at some of these issues. And and from a data perspective, Europe has long been ahead of the U.S. from a data in uh, in thinking about data privacy issues, but the U.S. and CFIUS, to the extent that they've come at these issues, it's been from the perspective of how can data be used by a foreign intelligence service to uh, to identify people that are potentially vulnerable to uh, to blackmail or extortion, people that have sensitive data. So uh, again, because data is uh, it has pretty significant implications from a privacy perspective, and because it's so easy now to collect massive amounts of data, uh, that's become an issue in many countries. And from the U.S. perspective, that same set of issues of being able to collect massive amounts of data and have it available and then manipulate it with artificial intelligence has created national security concerns that have now been the cause of a number of transactions that have been completed uh, without CFIUS review to be undone because of CFIUS concerns. So it's it, the convergence ac- across countries for different reasons is very interesting. I think I think that that's a really interesting point, Ayman, because you know we're used in, in the antitrust world to see that there are certain regulators which are you know, recognised as the sort of leading regulators who you know will have a lot of influence over what regulators in countries with less developed competition regimes are doing. And I think, you know, we are seeing that increasingly that, you know, obviously countries like the US with, a, you know, a relatively long history of CFIUS and, you know, experience in assessing these sorts of transactions, you, you can effectively see some sort of cross-pollination of both issues in terms of, you know, sectors that other countries may want to focus on, but I guess also a bit of just learning from how Cepheus has does things and, you know, the sort of practical points. Um, and, you know, when you layer on to that, the fact that we're seeing increasing cooperation globally now between regulators. Again, we're very used to seeing that in the merger control space um, on big global M&A transactions. But I think this increasing sharing of information between foreign investment regulators globally is another important development. And it brings you back to the point that, you know, in any transaction which does touch on multiple jurisdictions, it's really important that companies are doing an assessment of foreign investment risk across the jurisdictions. Um, You know, it's no longer, I think in the old days, foreign investment was seen as a sort of a bit of an add-on Thing that you needed to tick the box on after you'd sorted everything else and you know it's quite clear from what we've been discussing today and the increasing trends towards protectionism that foreign investment is going to have to be dealt with in the same way that we've learned to deal with global merger control issues yeah and just to pick up on that it's 
it's I don't think it's also necessarily going to be an issue of just looking at China, for example. Now that these authorities are in place, the uh, I think it can be expected that there will be a risk that they will be used even between the U.S. and uh, and, and European countries, uh, especially to the extent that there is this increasing convergence and in perception of of economic and national security issues, um, you know, one of the risks on, on the U.S. side that I think CFIUS has largely been able to avoid thus far. But uh, if you listen to people like Peter Navarro out of the White House, you know, the, the risk that uh, economic comp- competition is seen as a national security threat. And then uh, if, if, you, if you proceed further down that line, uh, then investment from a country that isn't necessarily a strategic adversary, but is an economic competitor could be seen as something that is in, in the U.S. context, potentially uh, actionable by, by by CFIUS. And we've certainly seen uh, U.S. investments in in Germany, for example, be subject to mitigation there that I think a few years ago would, would have been unlikely to have occurred. And similarly, some European investment in the U.S. Uh, subject to increased scrutiny not necessarily because they're European, but in some cases because those European companies have ties uh, to to third countries like China, uh, where the U.S. is concerned about uh, Europe as being a sort of a waypoint or a transfer point. I think I think that's that's really a really important point. I mean, because I think there is a tendency sometimes for people to think this is all about China. You know, why, why would um, you know the German government be concerned by you know, a U.S. private equity firm coming in and, and taking a stake. And of course, you know, it is the case that, you know, clearly there's a focus on China at the minute, but it's not just about China. And there is just an increasing awareness among governments globally that they need to scrutinize these transactions more closely. And I think, you know, if, even if you look at the U.K., historically, the sort of interventions that we saw were very much focused on the defense sector, but that wasn't Chinese investments that were leading to interventions. It was investments even from, you know, friendly countries. Um, and, you know, clearly what the COVID-19 experience has taught countries is sometimes you don't actually know who your friends are these days. And I think the pandemic has really exposed that. And, you know, these sort of shifting geopolitical winds and, you know, fights over trade agreements and everything else, you know, it is inevitable that that is going to play in to the calculus when when countries are reviewing these foreign investments. And I do wonder if we will eventually get to a point of tit for tat um, interventions, which, you know, may not actually raise any genuine national security issue as such, but because of this, you know, battle for um, economic leadership or this technological sovereignty that I talked about earlier, that, you know, we, we could have some stormy times ahead, I think, on the foreign investment front. Clearly, this is an area where a lot is changing and a lot is changing very quickly. So, I mean, how are clients dealing with the need for predictability in their merger control processes in light of all this change? Yeah, it's really tough because, you know, it used to be that it was pretty easy to identify what could potentially trigger government's concern because it was mostly focused, as Michelle said, on sort of traditional defense areas. Uh, but now, as we're moving into areas where they're non-traditional, it's not necessarily intuitive what the government may have uh, concerns about. So it's increasingly important for, for clients to come in early and 
uh, to ask the question, is this something that the government may have a concern about? And one of the reasons you see a number of transactions that have resulted in prohibition orders is because at the time that they entered into them, there wasn't necessarily a common understanding that data, for example, could present a, a national security concern. Um, and so it's it has become uh, less predictable. That means that uh, that you have to have a degree of insight into how the governments are currently thinking about these issues, what types of transactions have gone through. Um, and so I think one of the things that uh, that we're able to offer of value to clients is sort of that insight from either having experience within the government or uh, having a number of transactions that have gone through these processes. So you have that engagement with the government and can look at it from their perspective as opposed to the, the perspective that a per, uh, sort of the, the average person who isn't steeped in these types of uh, discussions uh, may have. And the rules are continually changing. So uh, the rules that applied a couple months ago have, are, have changed in many, many countries. In the U.S., the rules are going to change in the next month related really to what's mandatory and what's not. And it's essentially gotten to the point where these are all case-by-case -case analyses. So very, it's very much the situation where for every transaction, you have to look at the particular facts, who the investor is, uh, what the target company is, what the government's current thinking is, uh, and how the rules uh, imp uh, play into that. So if I can draw together what I'm hearing for, from all of you, we have uh, different regimes with different sectors under review, different thresholds, different levels of procedural intensity and scrutiny, and it's all changing all the time. So. In that world, Hazel, how uh, can a company deal with that on a specific transaction? What are the practical steps that you have to walk through? Yes, sure. I think the most critical part perhaps was just as Ima mentioned, to be able to understand what is exactly uh, on top of the government's mind. As we can see right now, the foreign investment review processes are no longer just a, a, a timing consideration or just a, a process consideration, can really pose real challenges to a transaction. And that is why I, I would think that the, the first thing is to really to consider the relevant foreign investment filings very early uh, in the process. Uh, in order to help not only to determine the scope of assets to be acquired, but also to start to think about what could be the uh, contractual protections against uh, such a foreign investment uh, risks. Contractual provisions such as uh, the reverse breakup fees and the remedy caps, which are in the past commonly seen uh, as protections against uh, the merger control risks, nowadays perhaps should also be uh, considered in the context of uh, foreign investment filings. Completely agree with that, and uh, and certainly the way we've been thinking about it or advising clients is that you need to do that planning up front, uh, and then you need to think about it as in, at the at the front end, planning and anticipating, and then engaging with the government, and, and then you know as as advisors, uh, helping that communication between the government and and the company, and and there's an importance to the timing of all this. You know, when do you approach the government? Uh, what are the other factors at play? How do you address other stakeholders in the process, whether it's uh, it's uh, the press, it's investors, it's uh, members of the legislature? How do you uh, best position your transaction to be understood by 
the regulator or their foreign investment review authority in a way that will emphasize the benefits of the transaction and will provide the scope for being able to negotiate uh, a resolution uh, that is, is favorable, that addresses the government's concerns, uh, as well as uh, allows the parties to achieve their economic objectives. And uh, certainly when we're advising companies on CFIUS, we tell them, don't look at this as an adversarial process and don't look at it as a uh, as a sort of a zero sum between the government and the company, because ultimately, if you want success in a transaction, you have to understand what the government's interests are. You have to be able to co- effectively convey to the government uh, what your commercial interests are, and you have to look for a way to bridge those two. And that's really the only way to get through it, because the government, at the end of the day, holds uh, most of the leverage here because they have in these areas a pretty broad authority to to take action. And certainly in the U.S., it's it's you know, judicial review is something that's very difficult and probably across the board. By the time you challenge a uh, a government uh, government view on some of this or government determination, uh, your 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 deal is probably stale. Uh, and so it's it's that much more important to have your sort of ducks in a row at the front end so that you can effectively engage with the government and look for a, a cooperative solution uh, at the end of the day. I totally agree with that, Ayman, because, you know, because of what you've just said about, you know, how the appeal process works in various countries, you know, essentially, you only really get one shot at this. Um, and so it's important to get it right. And I've certainly seen in transactions that we've worked on, you know, obviously, when you're dealing with governments and, you know, governments are dealing with the sort of media reaction to what they're seen to be doing or not doing in certain cases. And it's really important that it's not just a legal issue. It's really important to have a joined up team between the legal team on one hand, but also government relations team, political advisors, in addition to the commercial teams of the companies because at the end of the day in order to get these transactions over the line sometimes it needs a mix of all three of those elements you know a bit of creativity on on the legal side um a bit of influence and I don't want to say power broking but but certainly being aware um of making sure that you're talking to the right people and that the the messages are landing effectively with government. And, and that's where the political advisors obviously play a big point. But then when it comes to considering any remedy strategy, because of course, if you end up in a situation where you do have to offer some sort of remedy, which goes to maybe some of the synergies that companies were expecting to get out of the deal. So there are lots of different moving parts there. And, you know, in our experience, the, the best way to get a successful outcome is to make sure that all of those various advisors aren't operating in silos, but actually are joined up as possible and are speaking to each other and that looking at the issues from, from all angles. So I think in addition to the early risk assessment that, that Hazel flagged, I think it's important to remember as well that you need to keep the foreign investment risk under review throughout the signed to close period. And I think what we've seen in Europe over the last few months where essentially foreign investment rules have been changed overnight. And you know, we've had some in-flight transactions, which when the party signed the deal, there wasn't a foreign investment filing in a particular country, but because of the speed with which um, the rules can change, 
before they get to closing, there is a foreign investment filing. And I think what we've seen in the COVID crisis is a perfect example of how when you do the risk assessment, you also have to take into account other factors that that may impact things. And you can't just assume that the regimes that you're facing when you actually sign up to the deal are the same regimes that you're going to get end up with at the end of it. And that's, that's a crazy position when you think about it. But that's certainly what we have seen in Europe uh, in recent months. Thanks, Michelle. It sounds like this is something that companies are really going to need to watch carefully as part of the M&A process. Well, that's the end of our time. But if you want to hear more about any of the topics that we discussed today, please feel free to contact any of our panel or your usual Freshfields contact. And of course, we'll be updating our clients regularly on new developments in this area as they happen. I'm in Michelle Hazel. Thank you so much for being here today to share your experience in this area. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you next time for more Essential Antitrust.